Thank you for tuning in to today's full episode of the Breaking Changes podcast. I'm your host and chief evangelist for Postman, Kim Lane. With Breaking Changes, we explore specific topics from the world of APIs, but look at it through the lens of business and engineering leadership. Joining me today, we have Shandar Shiv Dasani, Vice President at Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Shandar stopped by to share insights about their contract-first approach to API infrastructure at Goldman Sachs and how being API-first helps them be more agile and nimble when it comes to responding to the market needs in the United Kingdom. Let's just start with the basics. Who are you and what do you do? Hi, so my name is Shandar. I'm currently the tech lead for Marcus UK, uh, based out of London, um, working on the deposits platform for the for the consumer side of Goldman Sachs. So what do APIs mean in your world, in, in, in this financial world? So, I mean, it's, 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 it's an interesting question, actually. So, so the deposits platform that we currently have, it's a suite of microservices that, uh, like, a lot of them talk to the external services. So API becomes quite important for us because uh, managing such a big uh, real estate of microservices gets quite tricky if we don't really have any specific, uh, like, common language that we can talk to across our services. And, uh, like, more importantly, you know, like, if, if there's any change in any sort of part of the system, identifying that change and, you know, identifying where the, uh, that has happened and why that has happened makes it quite easy. Like, the API side of things makes it quite easy. So is this more mm -hmm. about modernization of the existing legacy infrastructure? Is it more about new products and services to meet the new demand or is it all the above it's actually all of the above because there were some services when we back when we started on the journey of uh, launching the deposits platform uh, we did have like some of the services that we inherited as well as we had an open uh, slate as well where we could come up with a bunch of new services specially tailored for our business so yeah it, it was all of the above i think i think more importantly it like we wanted to be agile as well in terms of reacting to market related changes like and it proved quite useful especially in the last two years of uh, covid where we had to react quite quickly to um, how the external market movements were impacting the deposits industry so let's let's talk a little bit about how you got here how 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 you made made yourself this agile and flexible to respond i'm assuming you're using swagger open api some sort of contract driven yes. approach yeah. So we, we internally call it contract first development. Uh, the way we started, like back back when the original team was working on the the whole sort of setting up of services and you know getting one service to talk to another service, uh, a common problem came up quite quickly was because since we were talking to external services and in our uh, dev and QA environment, we were talking to their non-prod environment. We were able to see that you know they were making changes and we would find the failures when we deployed the service and started testing those service in different environments and uh, like some of those changes even by the external services were done intentionally while some of them trivial like you know some optional field was changed to mark as required and then all the clients started failing and there was no versioning whatsoever around that uh, so so it became quite imminent for us to sort of come up with an approach that would allow us to identify these kind of things as early in the development cycle as possible. I mean, Open Open API or Swagger was pretty much the de facto standard back then for writing your um, API contracts. The open source toolings on top of that made it quite easy for us to generate a lot of boilerplate code. And it also helped in detecting a lot of these backwards incompatible changes. The other sort of advantage we saw as a side effect of this was 
since the APIs were sort of descriptive, it became quite easy for us to sort of start reviewing them. So the type of process we started following was uh, whenever we wanted to work on a change, a developer would start by either developing the API or modifying the existing API, get through that review cycle, get the feedback, and off the back of that, you know, they could do the development. Uh, so it made the process, basically it introduced a form of process around how we manage APIs. And it, it sort of, uh, it, it grew quite a bit in the division that I was in, uh, an API governance introduced around APIs because since a lot of teams within the division were sort of working on API and they were doing API first development, uh, we started sort of identifying some common patterns and started enforcing those patterns across different teams just to keep our APIs consistent. So yeah, it, it kind of sort of evolved with a small idea of sort of managing APIs in a more sort of a methodical fashion and it sort of, it, it's become quite core to what we do right now. I hear a lot of folks say contract first. But you're using it as the guiding kind of phrase. Do you feel like using that instead of API first or design first has some sort of impact um, bringing it closer to business? I think I think uh, with, with business, I think what, what we realized was having these kind of conversations around what we are building, especially from an API perspective, made it quite easy, like firstly, to start identifying how long will it take for us to build something. Because we weren't just talking about uh, random numbers here. Now we have an API that we can look at and we can get some reasonable estimates on what the development would look like. The second thing where it helped us from a business perspective quite a bit was quite often when you want to work with a new team or an external vendor, it's, it's not quite easy to identify what that integration looks like. When, when some of the vendors who support like OpenAPI and, you know, they can share us the OpenAPI contract as part of the initial discussions, it makes it quite easy for us to, you know, start visualizing what we can do on our side, what that integration looks like. And in most cases, you know, it helps us spin up like a mock server while, while the discussions with the vendor is still ongoing. Uh, uh, we can, we can sort of look at, get an idea of what we need to do and start, at least start sort of uh, developing our infrastructure around it. Yeah, so it sounds like you're generating code, docs. You're able to to use this as a as a, as a way for partners getting partners on the same page. Did it reduce the time it took to engage with partners and get them up and running? It it made it easy actually. I wouldn't say it reduced the time that much. Like we uh, like to be honest, we never really quantified that. Like how much time did we really save with this? But it made the process a lot more easy. Basically, you know, like we were able to sort of have a quick turnaround times, especially in the lower environments. Whenever we had a contract from a partner in an open API format. Yeah, no, it definitely creates that common vocabulary. Gets people on the same page. What did it look like getting teams up to speed? I mean, I'm guessing the design review processes, but how do they learn about the governance and the patterns and, and what they should be doing across all teams? So we, we rely quite heavily on uh, code reviews. We have like the API governance team has a bunch of senior people who sort of get together to discuss changes uh, and, you know, come up with what the architectural patterns should be. Uh, we rely a bit on them to sort of provide us with a guidance, especially for things that we don't have any, you know, common patterns across. Because for most of the common ones, like you could easily find what the best practices are. So, so that is one aspect of it. Like the tech leads that work in the division work quite closely with the API governance team. Uh, all of them basically talk to them on a regular basis. They are involved whenever there's an API related discussions happening. So essentially most of the senior devs 
are aware of the kind of guidelines. We've got a good level of documentation as well, defining uh, what the common patterns are, how we should go about them. And yeah, of the, and, and in the end, like um, code review process, uh, anytime there's a code change and all, um, uh, we, we go through a strict review process. So we, we discuss like why a particular change is needed. Uh, and yeah, we have a whole sort of a discussion around it. Uh, what the API governance team has also helped in cases is that they're building toolings around these kind of things. For as an example, it allows them to create tooling around identifying backwards and compatible changes. So things like if we've made a field, we've deleted a field or added a field and made it required without any versioning around around it. So it, it basically it gives you the advantage of, you know, automating a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. That uh that <laughs> automation and that enablement that is possible in a, in a contract driven or API first driven mm. reality is pretty key. And I'm assuming this is mapped to your, your existing software lifecycle through source control, CI, yes. CD, yes, and all yes. of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All, all of it is basically managed in a central depository, which is basically the ultimate source of where the contracts sit, all the review process and everything happen over there, like a typical merge request reviews, and then merging if everything looks good. And the, these services uh, depend on these contracts whenever they want mm -hmm. to generate code. Yeah, no, it uh, sounds pretty, I think, pretty modern as far as what I see across groups yeah. and really using that contract as the standardizing force. I know you're in the financial space, so regulation's a reality. What does regulation look like when it comes to this kind of contract-driven approach? It, it, it makes it it makes it easy. I think, like since since uh, since we work on since we work a lot with sensitive data, I think the main like the main important thing we have is to make sure that the sensitive data is handled in a correct fashion. Like for example, things like it doesn't get logged anywhere across the entire our suite of microservices. What, what contract first development and open API makes it easy is basically for us to start identifying those things because you get like a clear descriptive contract and you can see that, hey, this is a, I'm dealing with a person entity here and the person entity has a lot of PII fields. We, we do have certain sort of mechanisms in our tooling that allows us to, for example, audit our PII. So whoever basically accesses the PII, we, we, we can lock them and get the ID of the person who has viewed those PII. We, we have a way to sort of handle the logging uh, centrally where a lot of these PII fields by default are not logged. And then if there is a particular reason for, for us to log them, then we mask them uh, in a particular way. Though we, we haven't really had any reason to sort of uh, log any PIIs, but yeah, but, but there's mechanisms that can, you know, identify these things. Uh, so, so like handling PII is like the main thing that this contract first development, as well as the open API and the tooling around API, open API has helped us. Yeah, really maps that mm -hmm. landscape as far as what is PII. I see it in healthcare space with PHI. And mm -hmm. so having that open API defined landscape really helps you see the landscape, know where you're doing this. So I'm guessing this helps you with GDPR as well, that yeah, you know where does, all yeah, your yeah. data is when they come asking. Exactly, exactly. And then like with things like, you know, where your aggregates are and, you know, if an aggregate represents a PII object, then you know what those PIIs are. Like where basically in your entire life cycle of a request, the PII basically flows through from one service to another. Like you can then have those kind of dialogues around, you know, whether this particular service really needs 
this particular PII or this particular field. Like where, uh, whereas like in, in the previous uh, Jack Saras or, uh, or Spring Boot kind of world without open API, I mean, you can certainly do that, but this gets a little difficult because then you have to really sort of look at the code to see how your request flows through. Whereas if you have like a self-described document, you've just got a one place to see, you know, what, where your PII or where your sensitive fields are. And then you can easily trace it through your entire real estate. Yeah, that's powerful. Do you think, is this something that is still very much in the domains of, of technical stakeholders or are business stakeholders starting to understand the potential of this kind of open API defined landscape? I think in our case, it has been purely uh, technical uh, so far. This was like, I mean, APIs and the processing around it was never really an issue when it came to businesses anyways, because it's a, it's a lot like, like we work quite closely together to come up with like business sort of tell us what needs to happen. And we have a discussion around how need, how that needs to happen. So they haven't really been uh, discussed, but they are aware that we use these kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of times when we have discussions with them, they kind of understand that, you know, if there's an open API or there's an API spec that we can look at, it will make things much easy. Yeah. And how do, how is this helping you with your, your legacy infrastructure and, and, and evolving? Is it helping you kind of map the monolithic what's existed before and, and move it forward? In in terms of that, we are halfway there actually. Like we haven't really fully gotten rid of all the all the monoliths or all the legacy systems. Mm -hmm. But what we've done in some cases is introduce these anti-corruption layers in between whenever we talk to services that we don't have any direct control over. Those basically then we define clear contract for the anti-corruption layer. So basically all the microservices that talk to this external service go via anti-corruption layer. So the contracts on our side, we try to keep it as clean as possible and as standardized as possible. And all the adaptation that we have to do then sits on the anti-corruption layer. The other thing that we've been able to do is in some services that don't traditionally follow the model of contract first development. We've still been able to use the client generators for them using the existing contracts. And we've tried to sort of try to sort of reduce the bridge as much as possible, though that being said, there's still certain aspects where uh, we have to go and modify the API directly in some of these services. And that's something that uh, we were sort of looking at and uh, trying to sort of move to a more standardized way of doing that. But it has, it has certainly helped us with the code generation side of things. Yeah. Docs and CodeGen are the, the two top drivers of folks. But then realizing the benefits of getting everyone on the same page and mapping the landscape yeah. is kind of the the next level where people are, are usually amazed at, at, at the visibility, at the control they get at, over their infrastructure once they start mapping it out. So is this helping you understand dependencies as well? I mean, you're talking about yes. the microservices relationships in there. Yes, yes. I, I, like a lot of times when we talk about moving a particular component from the old way of doing things to sort of using open API, a lot of time we start identifying things that, you know, this particular service has this dependency, but it's not using it. So let's get rid of it. It, it makes it quite easy because when, when you try and start sort of integrating it with the services that do use open API and you've got these code generators, you start seeing things like, okay, this particular POJO is 
not being used at all which is quite difficult when you have all this magic happening behind the scenes like using serialization and stuff it it's not that easy for you to visualize or even you know use like some of the smart benefits of like your ides to identify mm-hmm. these kind of things yeah yeah and it's it's critical to be able to move the enterprise ship forward in any sort of meaningful way but when it when it comes to enforcement I and mean, when we talked about governance when it comes to enforcement of governance is are you finding more success in like earlier shifting left design time you know application of governance is or is it more pipeline hey nothing's going to get out the door or is it a combo of and, and design reviews help with that so design reviews help quite a bit so we essentially we try to uh, have everything during the code reviews that's what uh, the api t- uh, governance team is quite focused on as well and that's why they're sort of investing on quite heavily on the toolings around it once the api is merged and you know let's say it being released to production then it's out of your hand uh, like modifying something in production then becomes quite a costly uh, affair so we try to sort of to shift left and try and identify as much as possible during the slc so we we basically get our changes merged by not just one person but quite a few people like some of the simple stuff then it's it's you've got standard patterns that's fine but when it comes to like tricky things like pagination and those kind of things where you don't really have a established uh, pattern because you basically are dealing with uh, another service that requires some fields that are not standardized so so we try to have discussions around it we do involve other teams because sometimes what happens is you working quite closely with this it gets a bit difficult for you to take a step back and uh, understand if there's a better way to doing things so we sort of leverage other teams in the division as well if if we need to sort of understand uh, how they've been doing things how whether they've come across similar patterns so 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 yeah it basically gives us a way to have all these dialogues uh, quite upfront and we try to do it as upfront as possible yeah and it sounds like it really kind of naturally gets everyone on the same page they're more aware it's just the pipeline's just not breaking and they don't know why or someone's yeah. not gatekeeping and yeah. they're able to uh actually understand the reasons and the logic behind it um exactly. which, which helps yeah. out a lot so what's the the api life cycle from your view and i know this is a hard one it means different things to different mm. people but if you were to lay out you know define design deploy like what what's your general life cycle view of how you move apis forward so- typically let's say we've got a particular requirement that we are working on uh, like there would be two things either that would require us to modify an existing api or it would require mm-hmm. us to introduce a new api and then we typically start uh, with with contracts uh, that's the first thing we do what that helps us also from an sdlc perspective is once we have the contracts then uh, we can have like two individuals one focused on implementing that contract and the other person focused on uh, thinking about testing how are we mm. going to test this and it doesn't really block us because we don't have to wait for the sdlc or the development to complete before uh, a person uh, can start testing that so what we, we essentially do is we get the contract send it out for review the individual might be making changes or at least implementing that contract while the review process is happening just to get a bit more insight but the contract needs to be approved and merged before we can actually consider the code change to be done so that happens and then basically we have once the contract is merged uh, then we go through a typical process of the code change the code change gets merged uh, and then changes gets deployed to dev 
and then it goes through like other higher environments before reaching production i think i think like uh, what certainly helps is the, the testing side of things in this because once you know what kind of from a testing perspective i think all you need is what the input is going to be and what the output is going to be which 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 open api makes it quite easy to visualize and then we don't really have to have like a waterfall kind of a thing within our uh, scrum where one person is waiting for the other person to implement everything before they can start doing something so we we tend to sort of use contract as as that starting point so really it feels like it gives multiple mm-hmm. people multiple roles what they need to kind of move the whole thing forward and and everyone just kind of falls in line in a certain certain process and and it comes together yeah. and moves to production how many different types of roles are involved in this process is it purely developers and QA is there security folks part of the handoff like so, what 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 are all the roles involved so so typically uh, so typically the reviewers also wear the security hat uh, mm-hmm. pretty much all the time because as as we deal with sensitive data like e- each one of the developers especially senior developers have to be quite wary of the changes that are happening and again coming back to the PII or any sort of authentication related stuff so essentially uh, from our perspective when a review gets merged that typically has two aspects to it it needs to be reviewed from a tech risk perspective so what we call is like application security champion so we have a process where uh, typically each one of the developer goes through a, a formal training to understand the risk and security patterns that are needed so they can embed that as part of their own development life cycle review means basically two things the patterns from uh, api perspective being reviewed as well as uh, anything from an uh, security or uh, technology risk perspective has been reviewed so both of these basically are sort of done at the review stage nice yeah the i think the role of is not just a design review it's just a review a general review of and it yeah. encompasses governance quality security okay. and education people learn uh, the developers are, are learning along the way as well is pretty key What's the gateway landscape going out the door? Like, what's the gateway landscape look like? Are you guys one central gateway rules them all? Are you more a federated approach, multiple gateways? What's 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 your view? So, of so we've got multiple gateways model because different businesses operate a little differently. Mm-hmm. So specifically for the the business that I'm involved in, we've got a separate gateway which we use to sort of take up. It's it's kind of like our front line from where all the requests come in, and we do a lot mm-hmm. of like initial checks and stuff over there. And then basically it gets sent to the federated suite of microservices that we mm-hmm. have running, depending on uh, what what the flow looks like. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Pretty common, I would say, pattern that I see across different enterprise organizations. So as you're, I would say, in in the grand scheme of things, you're UK focused or are you addressing multiple regional concerns as well when it comes to your deployments? So so I think I mean we we focus purely uh, on the UK business so not necessarily the deployments are UK focused but the business is UK focused like it's it's a quite a collaborative division uh, as I said like we talk to each other quite a bit try and understand if there's a there's a piece of functionality that we can reuse if we need to but yeah like essentially we when when we do the development uh, some of it would be focused quite heavily on the UK business because of the nature of the things yeah do you feel i feel like from i'm not an expert on psd2 or or financial regulations but i've been following along as a, as a spectator for a while 
Would you say that the UK is the most advanced when it comes to this type of regulation in, in, in not just Europe, but the world? Would you say that the, the model is, is something that's healthy or and should be emulated throughout the world? Maybe that's too big of a question. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's I mean, I mean, to be honest, that's a bit outside my domain because I yeah. Uh, like, yeah, I mean, we we work quite a bit from a GDPR perspective. Uh but yeah, anything outside of that uh, is certainly not something that mm. I can uh, I can comment on. Uh, Fair but enough. yeah, it's 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 a little different than uh, than the different regional based uh, services that I've sort of been involved with. So definitely, there's a bit more sort of uh, strict processes around it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your honesty on that. I'm yeah. always trying to. There's a lot of different opinions on on whether PSD two and, and were a failure or not or successful, yeah. and so I'm always trying to scratch and get new views. But for you, like moving to you personally, like why are you doing APIs? Why do, why does this type of work even uh, something that you're you're interested in? I mean, I've been doing APIs for a while now. Uh, I mean, different uh, flavors of APIs because APIs mean different, like different things to different people. Like even, even within the firm that I am, like APIs mean different things to different people. But uh, one, of, one of the things I really enjoy uh, about APIs is basically the whole sort of a lands, uh, language aspect to it. Like it's basically, you know, you've got to, you're trying to get one service to talk to another service. Like how effectively and how efficiently you can uh, make that conversation happen. So that that's something that I, I quite enjoy. Then you've got different aspects around synchronous communication versus asynchronous communication, which like, you know, you might not use Open API, you might use things like Avro and stuff, but again, they sort of, you know, you're trying to come up with a unified language that you can, you know, uh, establish between uh, two services that speak completely different language. Yeah. One of the more interesting API conversations I've ever had was I went up to Oxford for a full day and spent time with the Oxford English Dictionary API folks. And so it wasn't just like the OED as an API, but it was their story about how language, you know, they've tracked language and across generations, but across country boundaries. And it just... It really reminds me a lot of APIs because, or so here, here's the question for you. How much of your job is technical versus business versus like people stuff? Is technical the majority of it or is it a lot of I, other I, I can, I mean, uh, on an average, if I consider like last six months or so, it's been like you could just split that evenly across all three stuff. Though there are different aspects where like certain weeks I'm focused a lot on technology and development side of things, certain certain sort of uh, period where I'm focused a lot on people management, especially around feedback discussions, end of year reviews and stuff. So it kind of sort of shifts uh, quite sort of depending on uh, uh, what was going on uh, in, in the business. But yeah, it's in, in a six month period, I think that would be like evenly spread across all of it. Yeah. And the people, in my experience, it's very much a human driven thing, but you have to know your technology and you have to, under, like you mentioned, asynchronous and, and Avro mm -hmm. and you, you have to start understanding these other other technologies alongside. Otherwise, you're going to make mistakes and that'll impact your business, mm -hmm. cause people issues and and things can happen. So I find the people side of it and the org shifting, changing an organization to be very fascinating why why the financial sector what what about the financial sector attracts you 
I think I think the the challenge actually, like the the scale of things that we do, uh, is quite sort of impressive with the way we've managed it. It's been quite quite a fascinating journey. From uh, like I joined the team before the business went live, uh, and seeing how things have been before. You know, we were still sort of trying to figure out what what does production environment mean for us, and what would the business look like when we go live to where we are now. It's been it's been a fascinating journey. The other thing, like the people, like the people I work with on a day to day basis, they've been uh, like one of the major reasons. All of them are quite smart. Uh, like like part of the reason I sort of I can sort of pick up new technologies is because you know you just call up someone. Uh, and just chat chat with them about the particular technology because there's just so many different people with diversified interests like it just makes it easy for you to you know sort of understand what's really out there so 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 that's been like the people side of things working here has been uh, quite fascinating uh, yeah and then i think i think sort of the kind of challenges that when you've got like one sort of a I I don't want to call it legacy system, but let's say old system because we don't really deal with legacy systems that much. Uh, but you know, like how do you sort of uh, how do you the things that we've built three four years ago, people are gonna call it old or legacy systems now. And how do you sort of keep those kind of systems continuously evolved with the latest trends and stuff? So so that that's another sort of fascinating uh, aspect to it. The other thing was like the, the domain itself is quite interesting as well because. If you think from a customer perspective, like you're building something that I can actually tell, like my parents, my wife, that you know what I'm doing, like it's a digital bank, they understand what that is. Yeah. Uh, so from a customer point of view, it's a simplified view, but uh, there's a lot of technical nitty gritty that happens underneath, like when you're dealing with payments, when you're dealing with regulations. So it's been challenging from all all across the corners, and it's been quite sort of rewarding as well because when you sort of build something and you can tell people that this is something you built. Uh, you can visually you can sort of get some sort of uh, feedback from that. Yeah, I think the relating to normal people, what we do is always an interesting challenge. I think most most of my family thinks I play video games for a living because um, they really don't understand APIs. So payments are are pretty universal. Everyone's going to get understand that one. So I like that as far as being able to do it. Do you think being API first? Because what you said about legacy a little bit ago. Uh, interview I did a few weeks back on with an AWS architect, he said, well, did you write it yesterday? It's a legacy code, you know? Yeah. And, and so do you think being API first is going to help prevent so much pain with legacy in the future that we're all, we're going to be able to move forward I think, and iterate? I, I mean, it, it definitely will help, but I think it needs to be continuously uh, evolved as well uh, from my perspective, because I, and this has happened to us as well, like quite quite a few times where we've taken like some API related decisions that made sense to us like a year or two ago. But a lot of the assumptions that we've made, a lot of the sort of, you know, preconceived notions that we have, like our technical expertise have also since then increased and changed. So we, we try and sort of like it's uh, so as long as you keep up. And as long as you sort of, you know, go back and revisit and just try and understand whether it still makes sense. Sometimes, you know, it might not make sense and you have to figure out whether we want to do things differently. But I think I think what, what I find it quite useful in this case is like, there's just one document I need to go back and check, like whether it still makes sense, like whether the learning that we did today, can that be retrospectively applied to any of the things we've done in the past uh, and it basically, like Open API gives you that sort of power and tooling because you could just version your API, deploy a new version of API, test that in different environments, and you know, like just flip a DNS area somewhere to get customers to start using 
the new service. So, so it definitely, definitely helps. But I think, I think uh, as a technologist or as a as a developer, that we need to sort of go back and keep sort of re sort of re-evolving the things that we've done, uh, only if it makes sense. To. Agreed. So has COVID world changed your approach or in any ways who you are, what you're building? Uh, not much, actually. Like we've had like a lot of this asynchronous ways of communication. And uh, like even pre-COVID, we were sort of moving towards a more memo-driven approach to how we do architectural uh, stuff. Because a lot of times, like, the common challenge we had was, and this was pre-COVID as well, that a lot of the architectural decisions that you take, everyone sort of agrees to, and it makes sense when you're taking it. But since it's not documented, like a year or two down the line, or even like a few months down the line, you look at it and you think, why, why, why did we make this decision? So what we try, what we are trying to do uh, is to basically get a bit more, uh, a lot of these decisions documented. And then uh, the process that we want to follow is like a lot of asynchronous way of getting feedback from stakeholders because it's, it's just not scalable to have meetings all the time and expect people to join and provide their opi- opinions all the time. So having like a, like a document where you define... Uh, your constraints, the architectural uh, approach that you're taking and why you're taking, and then sharing that across to different stakeholders so they can provide asynchronous feedback. So that's something that we have, uh, like even pre-COVID was something that we started to do. And it helps on multiple levels, like you've got new joiners joining and you've got a documentation completely ready of your architecture that they can just review and they can reason out as well, because a lot of times it gets quite difficult for new joiners to reason why they are doing it in a particular way. Because, you know, you've got a fresh perspective and you think that, you know, this could be done in that way or this way. So having like a well-documented reason and uh, more importantly, the kind of architectural compromises that you make, having that documented helps quite a bit as well. Yeah, it feels like the contract first approach allows us to not just document the decision now, but we have that historical record that anyone can learn from and come and go because we're going to have to build for turnover in our staff and our teams. People are going to change departments. People are going to come and leave. And we need that that codified as part of our overall capacity. This is what this is what we do. These are our resources and capabilities and the quality, the security, all that work has to be codified and and translatable across teams and stakeholders. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think it it just makes it easy for us to, you know, just share it across to different teams as well. Like, uh, for, for example, if we've built something that is, uh, common enough for other teams to uh, use. We could just sh- share the contracts with them. They can review it and they can, you know, help us uh, make the like platformize uh, a particular component that we're working on as well. So, so like yeah, a, a lot of it is like you know like and and granted a lot of it was not something uh, I don't think anybody really thought of that before doing uh, contract first. But uh, the kind of you know like benefits that we've seen. Uh, Purely not just uh, the techn- technical benefits, but also like, you know, the communication aspect of what you do has been quite, quite impressive. And I think that has just re-emphasized us that, you know, like what uh, the kind of path that we are on. And this is something that we need to continue to follow. And that's why, like, even from a firm perspective, there's been a lot of investments around uh, how we do things and how do we, you know, get this out there to other teams. Uh. Yeah. I mean, I talk to a lot of people doing APIs and I tend to categorize people based upon how they respond to things like, and the contract being contract driven or API first or not is a, is a big piece of it. 
and how people use that. Cause a lot of people will say, well, yeah, we use Swagger or open API and, mm -hmm. and we publish our docs with it. And then they stop there and I go, Oh, mm -hmm. I mean, that's shows are not as far along in their journey, but where, where y'all are at, like you see, mm -hmm. it's not just docs and code gen. It's, mm -hmm. it's that holistic collaboration automation, governance, mm. that whole full suite that comes with it and that shared understanding that's essential mm. to move things forward. Definitely, definitely. And I think I think huge credit to the people like before me who've been sort of pushing, pushing this uh, API side of things and kind of has helped us immensely. Right. Uh, I love I love the API journey. That's what this is all about. Mm. For me, I've been, I've been doing it since 2010 full time. And so I've seen a lot of, a lot of people at different points in the journey. I'm on my own as far as my understanding. <laughs> but, uh, what do you do to stay interesting, curious, passionate outside of APIs? What do you, what, what keeps you going? I, I love cooking. I do love, enjoy cooking. Uh, at, at one point in time, I was actually starting to become a chef, uh, before mm. I committed myself to, uh, the technology so so cooking is something i really enjoy spending time with my family i have a two and a half year old uh, so he keeps me quite busy uh, and entertained as well i would have said traveling but i haven't done much traveling in the last <laughs> two two and a half years as well because of covid but traveling is another thing i uh, quite enjoy yeah well enjoy those years those years that your your son is right now those are the good ones so i think it's somewhat <laughs> of a blessing that you get to stay home and sure. my my daughter she's off in doing university in seoul south korea so i don't see her as much okay. and oh wow miss those days but uh enjoy them well i really appreciate this has been a fascinating walk in your shoes as far as how you see the api mm -hmm. space i'm really impressed how far along in your journey y'all are mm -hmm. i would love to definitely stay in touch Feel free to ping me when, when new releases or new interesting areas that you want to chat about, because I love exploring this and, and be, you know, the financial space, educating folks about it. But even beyond, a lot of people are interesting to learn from your experience. So I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. I really had a wonderful time chatting with you about everything API. Like that's been, it's been a good conversation, actually. Like a lot of things I never really sat down and actually thought about uh, and only sort of uh, thought about how important this has all been while chatting with you. So really, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you thinking on your feet, too, because uh, for everyone <laughs> listening, I we talked before and we had some, some notes. <laughs> but I did not provide them with any scripted questions and I just kind of grilled you and you did great. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Shonder for stopping by. You can find more about Marcus by Goldman Sachs at marcus.co.uk and you can find Shonder on LinkedIn. You can subscribe to the Breaking Changes podcast at postman.com slash events slash breaking dash changes. I'm your host, Ken Lane. And until next time, Cheers.